1: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my conversation with Anthony J. Lavopa, Professor Emeritus of History at North Carolina State University. His book, The Labor of the Mind, Intellect, and Gender in Enlightenment Cultures, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. This erudite intellectual history explores how cultivated men and women in early modern France and Britain thought about the intellectual capacities of each sex. The manly and feminine attributes of the mind were tied to bodily and social concepts of female weakness and sentiment and male strength and reason. Beginning with the 17th century Salon culture of Paris, in which women were dominant, and within an expanding commercial print culture Women and men conceptualized the gendered notions of what was required for polite conversation and intellectual agility. The exertion of labor was set against the desirability of the creativity and ease of play. Lavopa examines the works of multiple prominent thinkers and the positive recasting of the labor of the mind and who was qualified to engage in it. The author also shows how those engaged in debate attempted to live out their ideal for intellectual life. In the course of a century and a half, the idea about the nature of intellectual labor and the limits of the gendered mind formed the foundations of modernity. Here is my conversation with Anthony J. Lavopa. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Anthony J. Lavopa. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Vivian. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. First, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write The Labor of the Mind.
0: Well, that could be a long story, but I'll make it short. Um, I'm uh, an historian, uh, and specifically an intellectual historian. I uh, got my PhD at Cornell in 1975. I've done three other books, but this time I branched out in two ways. I I moved into gender studies, which I had not been doing before this book. And I also... um, Until this book, I had been basically a Germanist, a German historian of the the Enlightenment. And uh, my plan was to return to Germany at the end of this book, but I I didn't. So it's about England, Scotland, and France. So that was all new territory for me. I'm an intellectual historian primarily, but what I mean by that is that I do the social history of ideas. Uh, I'm interested in social context, cultural context... As well as the uh, a close reading of texts.
1: Now, why why did you turn to gender? What was driving you to turn to gender?
0: You know, that's actually a very difficult. I'm not sure I have an answer to that okay. question. Uh, I, I did a biography of a German philosopher named Johann Gottlieb Fichte that was published in 2001. And uh, one reason why I did the biography was because it had very rich correspondence, his surviving correspondence, and that included correspondence with his fiancée, then wife, in periods, fairly long periods when they were separated. And it was, from a gender standpoint, it was extremely rich. Um, And uh, so I did an entire chapter just on their relationship. And I guess that got me started. You know, I had always been following gender literature, and I taught it quite a bit. But it was that it was that correspondence. I love working with correspondence, and uh, that correspondence that got me into the uh, into the subject. Okay. And then another, I guess, another thing was that through Festa, I began to realize that there was something obvious going on in gender that we were missing. Uh, that um, that much of the differentiation of intelligence between men and women in the early modern period, seventeenth and eighteenth century, was about labor and uh, And it's opposite, which is not laziness, but effortlessness. And that became the axis around which I decided to build the book. Uh, In a way, it's obvious, but in another way, it it isn't. Uh, And uh, I had began to realize that we weren't reading texts with that axis at the center of things. And also that um, this was key to understanding another realization, which was that we talk about gender and status, but we hardly ever do anything about the connection between the two. And uh, my argument has, throughout the book, of course, is that gender and status are so intertwined as to be inseparable. And the highest mark of uh, superior status in France, and then also going into other countries. But especially in France in the 17th century, it was freedom from labor. What that meant was not simply that women didn't have to work. That was uh, – I'm talking now about uh, society women uh, in La Monte, uh, in Paris. That was – It was unthinkable that women in that world would ever actually have payable employment. The issue is whether they could engage in intellectual effort and show that they would engage in in intellectual effort. And the answer was that they couldn't. So you have this strange situation in which there's a a whole revaluation of intelligence between men and women in Le Monde, in in, uh, the the age of politeness. And in many ways, women are attributed superior intelligence uh, to men they can't labor intellectually
1: okay now you're, so that's
0: the, that's the irony of the book the,
1: the your your book starts in the, the 17th century in the salon culture in paris right. which sets up a kind of an elite space for women as a women's mm-hmm. sphere how okay so t- tell tell us tell the audience something about what this these salons were like how did women distinguish themselves and control that space
0: yeah this goes back to the um, mid-17th mid century. Uh, the salons were, um, for the aristocracy, a kind of alternative to the court, the royal court. And most people in the salons also had to attend the royal court. That was simply unavoidable. But compared to the court, they were relatively informal. I say that though, the court was had rigid, rigid protocols about who could sit where and who could speak to who and so on. Compared to that, the salons were relatively informal spaces of conversation. Compared to what we would consider informal, they were actually quite formal. And uh, the role of the women was to organize them and preside over them. Uh, these, these were wealthy, usually wealthy aristocratic women. Sometimes uh, it's a very mixed group of people in the Monde. Old aristocracy, new aristocracy, some bourgeois wealth. And then, of course, some men of letters who uh, may, might have... Been, may actually have been of common origins, but had mastered the the art of politesse, which is an art of socializing and conversing, especially.
1: How how is this connected to the rise of commercial literary culture, print culture? That's
0: an interesting question. It's only at the very beginning of it. Most of the literature produced by Le Monde was for itself, and a lot of it was passed around in manuscript uh, novels, Serial novels, um, poems, epistles, Uh, the art of letter writing was a a major part of this culture. Uh, Some of it was uh, sold on the commercial market, but not very much. It's only in the 18th century that it becomes commercialized. Okay, Then you get an explosion of... Commercial print, yeah.
1: Now, the uh, the Salons, this uh, Lamont uh, culture, it was in opposition or standing against couple, uh, several things that you talk about. Uh, the, the debauchery of the court, apparently it was there was a lot of, I don't know what, exactly what that means, uh-huh. but there was also uh, that, the court itself, col- scholastic ben- pedantry and religious dogma. There was a lot of uh, kind yeah. of fossilized... Yeah. Uh, very rigid norms, of knowledge of what was uh, how knowledge was to be produced and and so it was sort of an opposition against that because apparently there was no no possi- there is no possibility for women to enter into those areas that were so closed. The debauchery the, the court had it debauchery. you know the court had
0: a public side and a secret side. You surrounded the king during the day and did his will and again there were these rigid they had nothing to do with debauchery. In fact, Louis XIV is quite straight laced, but then in, in the evenings, who knows. What would happen the, the greatest form of debauchery was actually gambling at night you know in private in private rooms in at versailles but from the point of view of the salons the debauchery was less important than the rigidity of the conversation and the narrow parameters in which the in, in which the conversation could take place there were just so many subjects that were just Taboo. Yes, so they, the the salons opened up an alternative uh, to that. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the other? <laughs> the, um, the
1: idea that there was a lot of uh, religious uh, dogma, scholastic sort of. Scholasticism
0: is a huge, huge part of the story. Um, this is the, uh, this is actually something that I, I felt had to be explored. Um, it hasn't really been explored to this point. It's the figure of the pedant, the pedant. The pedant is a, is a, uh, usually a university scholar. He teaches at the Sorbonne or maybe somewhere else. He's steeped in classical philosophy from which women, of course, were excluded because they didn't learn classical languages. I would say hyper-academic and male, aggressively male. The young men went to a college, the equivalent of a high school, and then to the university. And that entire experience was a kind of male ghetto. They didn't learn how to behave with women. And the result was that from the point of view of women, I'm talking now again about these educated and cultivated women. They were boorish, they were well pedantic, and above all, they were hyper aggressive.
1: Brutish? You call them brutish? British, but brutish.
0: yes, brutish certainly. they they regarded them as brutish. yeah, and so the pedants now how many pedants pedants were actually like that? I can't say, but the, the 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 pedant became a kind of foil against which to define the refinement, the uh, complaisance, the uh, the ability to please. The harmony of polite society. We have to keep in mind that we, how polite, how people actually behaved in polite society is something of a guess. What we find in the literature about it is a literature about how they should behave. It's a kind of imagined world, you know, what we ought to be like. But one of its foils is the pedant. In fact, I'd say its chief foil is is the scholastic pedant. And that means that for men of letters, if they wanted entry into this world, they had to avoid it. Had to avoid pedantry, any sign or any stigma, a mark of, of pedantry.
1: Now, one of, one of the things that they have here is um, that you talk about is the view of labor and labor as being opposed to play. And we're talking about labor here. We're not talking about job. A- work uh, we're talking about uh, uh, exertion intellectual uh, right so how was that opposed? why was labor so denigrated in this group of um, uh, the salon culture and how is it opposed to play and how did they try to create an atmosphere of play and what does that mean
0: yeah yeah uh, well labor uh, this is a very steep social hierarchy and at the top is lamont the uh, the high society of Paris which is largely though not entirely aristocratic this goes back centuries I think and has been true of many societies until quite recently I mean we live in a society in which you validate yourself through work by and large through other things as well but probably the chief way in which you validate yourself to yourself and to others is work Uh, and so it's very hard to understand us to understand societies in which that was not the case that work was not validating it was demeaning it was uh, a mark of uh, it had to do ultimately with the, an ideal of natural freedom. In work, you you were subjecting yourself to the necessity of nature. You had to till the field to eat or whatever, get an income. The freedom of, this, of, of, the, of Le Monde is a freedom to play with no particular purpose or uh, and no necessity in minds, and the emblem of that freedom became the the, uh, the aristocratic woman. This is not about perching an elite at the top of a division of labor. It's about perching an elite above the division of labor in a zone that is completely free of
1: labor. Yeah, so one of the, things, yeah, so one of the things I noticed about uh, this culture that you kind of described in that first chapter or that early chapter, which I thought was a really an excellent chapter about the salons, everybody sort of had to present themselves in an effortless sort of way. That's right. So that that's their right. speech yeah. and their what they said sounded like they just never thought about it, even though they might have prepared before they got there. When
0: well, they, that's, that's right. There was a lot of rehearsing, <laughs> uh, but they had to appear uh, spontaneous
1: spontaneous yeah. and just able to be very fluent and, and
0: in that sense natural
1: natural now one thing that you challenge in your in your chapter there is that the the salons have been described by feminist as you know feminist uh, scholars as feminist spaces or the beginning of feminism as a and you challenge that they were feminine feminine uh, spaces but why uh do you argue that it they were not Feminist faces?
0: Ah, uh, that's a complicated question. No, it is uh, a
1: complicated question. and uh, okay. So you don't have to what really I'm go into it really deep. What I'm saying are not
0: modern feminists.
1: Right. So
0: if, if, we, if we define by feminism any step in the direction of the emancipation of women's minds, for example, then they were feminists. But they were early, what we historians would call early modern feminists meaning in the period from roughly the 16th through the 18th century. If you think about modern feminism as we know it today, and as it came into being in at the very end of the period of the book in the late 18th century, one of its key principles is that women should have the right to work and should have equal access to all kinds of work, professions, with, of course, equal rewards, equal pay. That's a, a kind of axiom of modern feminism. It was not an axiom of early modern feminism. Right, it, they
1: were they were asserting uh, political rights. They weren't asserting the right to work. In well, fact, uh, work well, was the farthest thing from their mind. They, they were, were,
0: to some degree, asserting the right to be authors, to be heard in the public sphere. That was that was really what emancipation was about.
1: Okay. So it's
0: just a different. It's a, it, it really requires a kind of anthropological. Analysis of the difference in norms and values between one society and another. And it's very difficult for us, I think, to g- g- go across that divide and take seriously the fact that labor was dishonoring.
1: Okay, now the other thing about the, this is also that the mind, there were masculine minds and feminine minds, and people had ideas of what yeah. those minds could do, these gendered minds. But so women uh, leveraged the difference yeah. for their benefit. They did. In,
0: they did. But within that restriction. Right.
1: Right. So, what what leverage did they use? What was it about the feminine mind that allowed them such control over the salons? It's it's both
0: men and women. It's not just women. Men are, are very much involved yes. in this. Yeah, involved in this as well. Putting women on this not on a pedestal, but essentially revaluing what they see as the features of feminine intelligence, taste. Women have natural taste, the ability to distinguish quality. This is still very much a part of our culture. Uh, Women uh, had a natural ability to to, uh, identify beauty and uh, to understand what was tasteful. Women, most important, had what I call relational intelligence. This comes from some of the literature that I I was working on. Uh, I built into the book, secretary literature, Uh, meaning that they were better in dealing with people. They, they, they had a uh, more empathy. They had a, a better intuitive grasp of what was going on in, some, in somebody else's head and experience. And they were more skillful at, uh, at dealing with people without causing friction. And then most important, I think, was the concession that women were better at language. Okay. Women had a greater gift for language.
1: And conversation... Uh, talking in
0: conversation, but well, then the question comes, well, this is the question, of course, if, if, you, if women are better at language and conversation, in fact, if men have to learn how to converse from women – Why shouldn't women also be authors?
1: Right, that's right. Or be in the pulpit, or or be anywhere, be public speakers, teachers, anybody, orator. Yeah. So let me ask you. Let's go on Uh, now. This again, in this culture, this culture develops, and all of a sudden, you have the rest of the book is about how different thinkers, men and women, uh, view these the space, the salon space, this culture, and uh, some of them negatively, and had didn't like it for a lot of reasons. Some of them thought it was you know, really good. Uh, some of them had, took some, some elements of the salon culture and, and expounded on it and, and started opening up spaces beyond the salons right. to women. So let's first talk about, uh, Delabar. Okay. Oh, well,
0: Delabar. <laughs>
1: he, he basically had, he had a, 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 some radical ideas about foundations for women's equality and he, Combined what he saw, what you're saying is he combined what a Cartesian theory of knowledge with what he observed in the salon culture to come up with some... Yeah, uh, or
0: what he read about the salon culture. It's okay. not clear that he actually went... Uh, was from a fairly um, affluent f- family in the legal bureaucracy, but he was not from a prominent family, and I think it's unlikely that he ever would have gained entrance to a salon. These were very highly exclusive. Right. You have to be invited. Oh, gosh, yes. And, but he read, you know, the literature about the salons. And, uh, from there he constructed an ideal of, he took the ideal of women we've been talking about and, and transferred it. He's an extraordinary character because he is a modern feminist in the first book he wrote on the equality of, of the two sexes. He makes a flat out argument that men, women, men, women should have the same access To every kind of employment that men do, including the military and government positions, you name it. There's no limit. It was quite a, and it all it all was based on uh, Descartes' philosophy, from which he took the principle that uh, the mind has no sex.
1: Right, and that's where he's the one that sort of coined that idea, right? Yeah. Okay,
0: but. The thing that I'm trying to do is show, yes, that's true, and it's extraordinary that he did it. It was quite radical. But look at the next book he wrote, which is on the education of women, and you see that he retreats. And he retreats precisely because the kind of labor he's advocating for women is the farthest thing from their minds. They don't.
1: Not appealing to them.
0: It's not, it's not, appeal- it's not, it's not thinkable to them. It's literally not thinkable right. to them because it would be such a dishonor right. given their, their background and their status. So he writes a second book, which is extremely interesting. It's in the form of a, a, a dialogue, and he goes back and forth. You know, he, he sort of waffles back and forth. It's obvious that he knows he's hit a problem here, and he's not going to get an audience unless he does something about it. And also he waffles back and forth on the issue of how much intellectual effort this is going to take because Cartesian meditation was extreme intellectual effort. You know, you, you, you worked your way up through abstractions and geometry and mathematics. It was very, very difficult. So sometimes he has to say, well, you know, this is very difficult. You have to prepare for that. And other times he said, well, no, it's not really difficult, really. You know, it's sort of like reading a novel. It'll be okay. Uh, so that's the book uh, that I focus on because I think it. It's often just been read as him repeating what he said in the first book. It's not at all that. It's uh, it's a retreat. Okay. So now, but you're... still, the first book. There is a tendency among historians, particularly historians who stress context, to say that in certain contexts, some things are simply not thinkable. So, for example, in 16th century France, it, it was unthinkable to be an atheist. Well, all it takes is one exception to disprove that. And Poulain de Labois, in the first book, is an exception. He thought the unthinkable.
1: Okay, so...
0: so figure. Yeah. So he uh, we don't know very much about him unfortunately.
1: But he but he he tended to have a uh what do you uh what I would say a positive response to the salons. So he he was Oh
0: absolutely he, 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 he made, the, yeah, he he made the the salon woman his ideal.
1: Yes. Okay. yes. So, so then you have Malebranche uh, uh-huh. who also built on this car but he goes the other direction. And so yeah, how does he, he view does. the Salon Society and and he, he talks hates it. He, yeah he talks about Effeminacy and becoming effeminate uh, uh, under the influence well, of these women. What does he mean by this, and what's his charge against it, against the salons? I mean, he he really is uh, pretty staunch against this whole thing.
0: Well, Malebranche to me is a was a surprise. I had no intention of doing Malebranche. I didn't want to spend my time doing Catholic theologian and philosopher, but he became increasingly interesting. So why? Uh, one thing I should say is that in choosing the people I chose, one reason was because the texts were good. Historians work with texts. If the text isn't there, there's nothing you can do. But also because I thought I, I could find people for whom the whole issue of gender was not just something you could add on and say, well, Malebranche was this, this, and that. And by the way, he was also had these views on gender. But that gender was central to his philosophy. So he gives us a whole new way of understanding the philosophy from the core out. Malebranche uh, was an Augustinian. The Augustinian movement was a very strong movement in France in the 17th century. He believed in original sin and the natural corruption of human beings. And he, uh, in that framework, effeminacy meant corruption.
1: Now, he, found he thought that truth was uh, found in reasoning. That's right. But if, if he believed in original sin, then the reason would be fallen too and faulty.
0: Ah, that's the interesting thing about Malbranche. Uh, he, uh, unlike other Augustinians of his era, he he believed deeply in original sin and the utter corruption of man, but at the same time he believed deeply in the power of reason to uh, to reach something like a, a contact with God through abstractions. So it's again this business of working your way up through a series of abstractions. Um, but he he. Uh, He regarded the society around him. He was from, actually, another fairly prominent legal family, and I think his brothers probably moved in the salons. I don't know. But um, like other Augustinians, believed that language was an instrument of power. So what other people saw as the wonderful art of conversation in the salons, he saw... As a manipulation of power.
1: Sounds very postmodern, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. Actually, there are things about Malebranche that are oddly postmodern, uh, and he uh, and of course that meant women were the worst culprits, but also the men who were feminized by them. No. So, effeminacy becomes a central concept in his in his philosophy.
1: Now, he 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 is promoting with his idea of knowledge. It's very abstract. Uh, they. The Cartesian sort of knowledge acquisition, but it's also found not in conversation and dialogue, but no. basically through science, his stoic, neo-stoic mm-hmm. kind of idea that he's going to be in this quiet zone, thinking these deep thoughts, and that he would go, come into conversation with other gentlemen, a small group of other gentlemen who have been doing the same thing.
0: I think we're confusing two people, okay. perhaps. Okay. One is uh, Malebranche, and the other is Shaftesbury.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. But, yeah. but he, what you
0: just described applies to Shasper.:
1: Yes, that's right. Um, sorry about that. But uh, this Cartesian idea, a uh, uh, way of thinking of knowledge, and also, but he did say he did think that silence was very important in the process.
0: Huge, yeah. Huge meditation in silence was the best thing you could do. This is not uncommon in the 17th century France. There were a number of people who felt that, that speech was corrupting, and the more silent you could be, the better. This leads, of course, to the founding of monastic orders devoted to silence and such things. But yes, silence uh, uh, was was. Was critical.
1: Another issue that comes up in, up in Chapter Four, where you talk about Madame uh, Lambert, uh, Lambert. Yeah, Lambert. And, uh, and is the idea of cross-gender friendships. Yes. And why that that was innovative. What does it mean to be in a friendship, and what did it require? And there were right. previously had been very masculine sorts of re, uh, ideas of virtue, masculine virtue, in order to be, actually have friends. So right. women weren't seen as being capable, really, of true friendship.
0: Right. Well, this, this goes back to the classical heritage, and particularly Aristotle. Aristotle had distinguished between instrumental friendships. So, for example, marriages, uh, father-children relationships, uh, your relationship with your employer, all of the things that constituted society in which people used each other as means to their ends or instrumental friendships, he doesn't de- denigrate them, but he distinguishes them sharply what he, from what he calls friendships of virtue. And those are friendships of a complete. Uh, there's no dependence of one on the other. It's uh, it's it's a shared commitment to virtue that binds the friends, not any need that one has for the other, for practical purposes or for yeah, for practical purposes. So. This becomes the ideal of male friendship in educated circles among men in, in Europe and stays that way until really, I think, till the 18th century. But, uh, one problem with it was one reason why men and women could not have, uh, friendships of virtue in that sense was that, uh, the erotic would intrude. Passion,
1: never. a passion.
0: Passion and sex, yeah. Uh, and, uh, that was never equal. It was impossible for two people to have equal desire for each other. So one would be in greater need than the other. And if that's the case, then the friendship of virtue, which requires complete equality, is, cannot be.
1: So what did, um, that's
0: ma- a very strong tradition that, that men learned in the schools and the universities.
1: How did, uh, Madame Lambert, uh, Lambert, uh. Yeah. yeah, her book, New Reflections on Women. How did, what was she? What was she saying in that book?
0: Well, she's she's um, you know, she was the the the, head of, the a woman who ran a salon, a very famous salon, which included many of the famous men of letters of the early 18th century. She was extremely well educated, and the book is interesting for several reasons. One is that she um, she denies the idea that women think naturally without effort. She actually denies that. She says women, they think differently, but not without effort, without labor. And she also believes that it's possible for men and women to be friends. And she had male friends in this along. But it's a very rigid, um, you can see how afraid she is that, that, that this will be misinterpreted, that uh, this is not about the erotic at all. In fact, the only way that this can be done is that the erotic be completely repressed or suppressed. So she, she—it's um, an ideal of male-female friendship, but one that is, we would say, somewhat puritanical.
1: It's very controlled.
0: Very controlled. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So uh, yes,
0: self-control is, is 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 the need for self-control is extreme in, in these cases. But now, that's the only thing that will be done.
1: She, well, she has a, often, she appears to offer a different idea about knowledge, which entails both reason, which was associated with men and women, and the sentiment of women, that those things had to be together in some way. That's
0: right. That's right. She's taking the language of the salons and polite culture and saying what this means is that women, she comes very close to arguing that women are superior in reason because they can combine reason with sentiment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's a that's a very radical argument in the for her for her era.
1: Now in chapter five you're going to go ahead and move over to to Britain, oh yeah. and you're looking at uh, the third Earl of Shazbury, uh Anthony Ashley Cooper, and you're look and you talk about his idea that uh, polite conversation among gentlemen had to be free from the influence of women. There there was a manly literary style. Right, that he was promoting. He had been a, he, and I noticed he was he had been trained by John Locke, and but he departed from Locke. Yes. So, uh, talk about him and his ideas about men and women and knowledge and uh, how this was to work.
0: Shaftesbury rejected all 17th century philosophy, so um, because it 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 didn't get at what was important, which is how one. Or to behave and be uh, happy, it was all about epistemology and such things, and he thought they were all irrelevant, and that included eventually he decided that was true of Locke as well as others. Um, Shaftesbury is comes out of a political tradition of called civic humanism, which is a, re, a republican tradition, although it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a republic literally. And it's a strong English tradition. His grandfather, his grandfather was one of the founders of the Whig Party. So, and he inherited that position as one of the leaders of the Whigs. So he had heavy, heavy political responsibilities, and believed deeply in something called English liberty, which he contrasted with the 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 slavery of the of the French. Uh, But to him, liberty required argument, and one of the things about Politeness, as it was imported from France, is that it actually banned argument. Argument was unpleasant. It was not polite. One person won, and the other person lost. Uh, he wanted men to get together in what he called manly politeness and argue things through and come to a conclusion. And he felt that that was absolutely essential for for English liberty to be exercised. He's talking, of course, mostly about gentlemen, not common people. But it was essential for liberty to be exercised in 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 England. And he wrote a series of essays in which he experimented with this kind of conversation in essays as dialogues. So
1: So he, he, he the thing about it that I noticed too about him is that he was he, he had a problem with the commercial print culture that was exploding. Yeah, because yeah he, he said,
0: did. That, now you're beginning to see the explosion of commercial print culture. This is
1: right. And he, first
0: it, decade or so of the 18th
1: century. He thought there was something really wrong with popular literature and this explosion. And what was the, the fundamental problem with this popular? He felt that
0: uh, what, was ha- what had happened to polite literature is, it, is that it had been commercialized. And by being commercialized, it had been corrupted because now you were pandering to a public um, rather than speaking your mind and being forthright. And uh, so since you were pandering to a public and always trying to please, that made you effeminate. And that made this kind of literature effeminate. That's something we probably should have talked about earlier. The key mission of women in polite culture was to please, as opposed to, let's say, judging.
1: That's why you don't argue.
0: That's why you don't argue.
1: Yeah. Right. Um. But he didn't think that that was a very efficient way to get to knowledge. You had to hash things out.
0: You had to hash things out, and only men could do that.
1: Right. Okay. Because women had yeah. women were by disposition uh, ple- uh, pleasers.
0: Women were by disposition pleasers, and all of this is in case within his commitment to Stoicism. Here's where the Stoicism comes in. Okay. Um, Shasbury was a, not just a neo-Stoic, he was a Stoic, a modern Stoic. And probably the most fascinating text I've ever worked with is something called the Askemata, which is the Greek for exercises which are the Stoic exercises he did regularly, about 300 printed pages. It's quite an extraordinary document in which he goes through all the steps of Stoic meditation, and but also includes a lot of personal stuff about his own life and his relationship to his friends and so on and so forth. But uh, you can't understand Shaftesbury unless you realize that he was a practicing stoic. And,
1: and he, he, part of the thing with the uh, popular literature or popular print culture was that he really believed in, that in, you had to be indifferent to reputation and you had to be right. detached from what people – uh, thought of you and and, right. and going out in public and publishing things, you're pandering, you care about the critics and what they say about you. And then right. you, on the other hand, the next chapter, you're talking about David Hume, who he's quite different. Yeah, he's quite different. <laughs> he's trying to like figure out how to have a popular audience uh, while doing, you know, good thinking. Yeah. And, and he's trying to, uh, he has a problem with patronage. He doesn't want to be a sellout. But he also uh, understands that in order for him to uh, reach a broader audience, which could ma- allow him to actually, you know, support himself without patronage. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: which he did. Yes, he had to kind of, he had to straddle these two different things. Which, right. Which is one of the things that was interesting to me when I when I put these two people together. It seems like uh, Shaftesbury and Hume. Uh, talk about uh, talk about this they uh, were different, and their their sort of dispositions are still with us today because you still have you know you have scholars today who sure. just want to talk to other scholars you know they sure. want to be in in you know in a study and they want to do their work and talk to other scholars and then you've got other scholars who are going no we 've got to go talk to the public. And there's a real divide among uh, academics about should we be talking to the public, and what is the cost of talking to the public if you have to like you know water down your thoughts and ideas in order to be understood. Right. So that yeah. tradition seems to still be with us.
0: This is yeah still well I would try with Jasper, it wasn't really scholars talking with scholars.
1: No I understand It's was, it was
0: gentlemen talking with gentlemen.
1: Learned men
0: yeah he had the same this well he had the same image of the patent as other people okay but gentlemen friends who were not learned in the scholarly sense but cultivated right that was those were the uh, his audience uh because he was he thought they were the natural ruling class of of England in in, in the uh, constitutional monarchy uh Hume is a fascinating figure. Yes, I think there's a wonderful new biography of Hume by James Harris, which discusses all of these things. And uh, he shows that, you know, after writing an extremely complex, almost incomprehensible treatise as a young man, he then goes into polite writing, essays, and so on. And a lot, oftentimes that's been thought to mean that he dumbed down things for a popular audience, but Harris shows that he didn't dumb down things. He put them in new ways, in a polite language. But he did not dumb, dumb them down, and he nor did he retreat from his radicalism on several issues, including religious issues. But he was very well aware that to be a polite author who could make a living, he had to have women readers. That was – you've reached that point by – this is now the uh, 1740s. In which uh, women are middle class and aristocratic women are a large presence in the reading market, the reading public. They're reading novels, they're reading all sorts of things, and they're reading uh, essays and they're reading histories. And Hume actually uh, made the bulk of his money from a six-volume history of England that was written with women as well as men in mind. Yeah,
1: I thought it was very. I thought that was a very interesting chapter also. Sure. It it, it was really good. So there's a lot of other things in your book that are so interesting that we don't have time to go into. Uh, So what I want to do is just give you a few minutes here to talk about a little bit of what you hope that this book will do or what you think people will take away from this book, because it it was very unusual, a a very unusual approach to gender and intellectual history. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, uh, there are a number of things. Uh, First of all, how to practice intellectual history. Uh, I believe that to do intellectual history as a socially informed history, you have to see how people exchanged ideas in social relationships, whether they be friendships or whatever they might be. And that requires a kind of research that most intellectual historians just don't do.
1: Well, you, what you do is, I notice that just about all these thinkers, you you actually place them within relationships, and then you talk about That's those right. relationships. in inter- Like, for instance, uh, uh, Leonard uh, Thomas and Suzanne Necker. And you,
0: Suzanne Necker, yeah.
1: You kind of you, so it
0: becomes partly a study of friendship.
1: Right, and you also talk about in Hume, you give an example of how he was trying to live out right. his ideas in his relationships. So That's right. uh which I think is really a really I think it's a really good approach.
0: Thank you. So then there are other things. Um I the, so part of it is within the field of gender studies the uh the point that cannot study gender in isolation. It 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 has to be one of several dimensions of things. And in this case the other dimension is status, or in in the words of the uh Early in period honor distinctions of honor. So I tried to demonstrate that it's often talked about, but it's almost never done.
1: Are you? Now is say is that interchangeable with the idea of a, a sort of a, a relations of, of hierarchy? Yes,
0: yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Then there are any, larger yeah.
0: things. Uh, really, one of the main—if if the book has a lesson. But I'd say it has two lessons. They're not new. One is beware of nature. If people say this is the way things are done because this is the natural way of doing things, watch out. We know this already from decades of feminist scholarship and also scholarship on, on race. But it's, it's insidious. It just keeps popping up and popping up. And uh, it's, of course, uh, oh, when you say that something is natural, you are saying it's beyond questioning. You're closing off critical question. And that's the way gender discourse has worked for centuries. It's it's rather different now. I think starting with new wave feminism in the 1970s, this is precisely what they said. No, we do not accept this. It's not natural. It's what's called socially constructed. You know, it has nothing. There's no, you can't simply appeal to nature and that's the end of the story.
1: Well, we're hearing it again in this uh, Me Too campaign recently. Interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. The it's, the idea, like, it's the idea that, you know, this is just some people in some quarters would say, uh, well, this is just the way men are.
0: That's right. That's right. And this is just the way women are. That's, that's, the, that's the corollary.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Really, Women really want this to happen. Yes. How much, how much, however much they may seem to protest. And then the final thing I would say is beware of the word intelligence <laughs> uh, as a singular word. There are many different kinds of intelligence. Um, I would go even farther and say we don't really know what intelligence is because to understand what intelligence is, we'd have to understand the connection between the brain and the mind. The mind is a, a metaphor. In a sense, it doesn't exist. It's simply a spatial metaphor. We talk about things being in your mind or in the back of your mind and things like that. Those are spatial metaphors for something that is has no substance. The brain we're learning an immense amount about. And it's really quite fascinating. It's the new scientific revolution, I think, uh, neuro the neuroscience of the brain. But how we make the jump from what we're learning about neurons moving around in the brain and what happens in the mind, ideas and so on, is still a mystery. But above all, I think above all with the beginnings of intelligence testing, go back to the 19th century, we get this idea that there's a single intelligence that can be measured with a number. And that's very, very... Uh, harmful to a lot of people. A lot of people. Because it, it puts some kinds of intelligence over others. Uh, my father was a highly skilled uh, craftsman who built boats and did all kinds of other things that I couldn't even begin to do. I don't have the intelligence to do it. Right. But he doesn't have the intelligence to have written a book like this. But Who's to say, you know, which is inferior or superior? And some things... In, in in testing, on mania for testing, a lot of different kinds of intelligence are getting erased or pushed out. And that's what happened, partly what happened with women.
1: Okay. You know, the okay. argument
0: was since they couldn't do abstractions, they weren't intelligent. Right. Well, why is that?
1: Anthony, we're out of time, but thank you. All right. You've been very generous with your time, and uh, thank you. And I want to thank You're our listeners uh, for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society of U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.